Again, we'll have some time to, to hang out after service. Uh, we'll get into our study. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It's a short chapter, but there's a lot, uh, a lot in it. Um, so it will be, it will be a full study. I'll try to make it a little bit quicker. Um, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> I was trying to cut stuff, and I'm like, I can't. Um, <laughs> it's just so good. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, if, if you remember, the, the last couple weeks, uh, we've really, been discussing first of all chapters one to three leadership right the title of the series first and second samuel is called born to lead thank you for the reminder um before i get into the rest of that before i go off on a tangent if you don't have a bible tonight just raise your hand real quick we'll, we'll get a bible in your hands just so you can follow along in the text know that what i'm saying isn't just what i'm saying but it's actually uh the word of god <laughs> for the most part anyways uh, i'll let you know when it's my opinion um <laughs> But everybody good? Nobody needs Bibles? No? Okay. Uh, like I was saying, we've been really focusing on leadership, but we see this, this break uh, in the text between chapters 4 to 6, and the focus is primarily on the fact that the Philistines took the ark, so we're still there. Uh, and last, last week, we discussed um, really what it means to, to fight the enemy with religiosity. And we kind of learned the, the, how not to fight the enemy and how, how the Israelites chose to fight the enemy and they thought they would just bring the ark in with these corrupt leaders and they would have victory, but that wasn't what was going to happen, right? The Lord allowed them to suffer defeat because they were lacking relationship. First of all, he was doing it to fulfill his word that Hophni and Phinehas surely would die. But second of all, he was trying to kind of restart his glory, if you will, and what he was trying to do in Israel. We'll see that really get started in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, chapters 5 and 6 are very interesting chapters. Again, we'll be just in chapter 5 tonight. But as we mentioned, last chapter, the ark was literally taken away from the Israelites. And we're going to see in this chapter that the ark of God is placed right next to another God. And we're going to discuss and see what happens when a God encounters the God, which brings me to the title of this teaching, when gods encounter God, when gods encounter God. See, God, as he so often does, will prove himself all powerful. This time he's going to prove himself all powerful over another God. And we'll discuss how this applies to us personally. We might not worship uh, Dagon, but there may be other gods or idols in our life that we worship. And because God is supreme, our response to his uh, supremacy should be to make him preeminent, to put him first. So we're going to discuss our response to his power, his sovereignty, his supremacy, and how that affects us in our tendency to fall into idolatry. If you would with me, 1 Samuel chapter 5, I'll read the whole text because it's a shorter one, uh, and then we will pray. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, 
Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashad. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashad rose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashad to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashad, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both, both Ashad and its territory, And when the men of Ishtad saw how it was, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon, our God. Therefore, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of God, ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to us, that your spirit would teach us, that you would move in power, and we would be changed um, by your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see what happens when the God encounters this false God, if you will. Let's dive in with a little more detail. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. We see the Philistines, they took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. See, the Philistines, we know it's a picture of the flesh, but it's also a picture of the enemy, the enemies of God. And see, the enemy, the enemy will try to take that which belongs to God, right? Why? Well, he's a thief. John 10, 10 says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And the enemy will try to infiltrate in our lives and try to steal things from us, try to take things from us, take things from us that are actually God's. And we can look at this and say, wait a minute, the ark is gone. God let the enemy take the ark? Does that make God weak? Does that mean God was defeated? No, the enemy can only take that which belongs to God when God allows him to. And we see this throughout scripture. One great example is in Job chapter one. You remember Job, he was referred to as the most righteous man in the land. This was a man that truly had a deep relationship with God. And we see That at a time when all the sons of God, meaning the angels, including Satan, came to the, uh, came to the Lord, we see this conversation that happens between, uh, the enemy, Satan, and God. Look what it says. Job chapter 1, verse 10. This is Satan speaking. Have you not made a hedge 
around him, speaking of Job, around his household and around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. We see Satan had to ask God in this particular situation. Doesn't mean it always happens like that. But in this situation, Satan had to ask God and God allowed him to do certain things. But he says, you can't touch his person. See, Satan wanted to wreak havoc on Job's life so that he could prove Prove to God that his creation will only worship him when they're receiving blessings, when life is good. But once life is bad, no, 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 your creation will no longer worship you. And God says, look at my servant Job. I guarantee you, you take everything from him. He will still worship me. And Satan took all these things, his children died, all these different things happened, but they only happened because God allowed them to happen. See, the ark was taken by the Philistines, not because God is weak, but because God allowed it to happen for a greater purpose, which we'll get into in a moment. It says, back to 1 Samuel chapter 5, that they brought the ark to the, this place called Ashdod. It was a Philistine city on the Mediterranean Sea uh, in like southern Israel. It was in that southern portion, that southern region of Israel. Picking it up in verse 2, it says, When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So Dagon was believed to be the father of Baal. Okay, and we see Baal quite a bit uh, in the Old Testament specifically. But see, he was a man that was a half man, half fish. He was a god that was half man, half fish. And the Philistines were devoted to this god. At least many of them were. And they thought that the reason they won this battle against the Israelites was because of this god Dagon. So they bring the Ark of God, which we talked about last week. The Ark of God is not God. It represents God. But we see God use the Ark, and he's powerful through the Ark in this passage. So it's a little different context than last week with the religiosity thing. God is, God is working through the Ark this time. So we see they set Yahweh, they set the Ark of God representing Yahweh right next to this other God. See, when you put Yahweh against other gods, those other gods are exposed for what they really are. Weak and powerless. This isn't the only time we see this. We see Jesus try to make this point to his disciples. He does it in a fascinating way. If you look at Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus takes the disciples on this little journey to get this deep truth across to them. Maybe the most profound truth that they needed to know that we need to know. And look what he does. He comes to this place called Caesarea. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, Caesarea, Jesus, he went there specifically, Caesarea Philippi, for this specific purpose. See, this place was known for its idol worship. It was believed that uh, Pan, the god of nature, was born here. They had so many different temples for the god Baal, who we just mentioned, Dagon being his father. They also had temples for Caesar here. This place was like rampant with idolatry. Jesus brings his disciples strategically to this place, likely with temples and idols and all these things behind him. And he poses this question. Look what he says. 
Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? What's he saying? I am Yahweh. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said when blessed are you Simon Barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven. See Jesus was literally putting himself up against all these other idols and he says who do you say that I am? Do you recognize me as the true God? In the midst of all these false gods, who is the real God? See, when we put Jesus up against any other God, we see that Jesus, he reigns supreme. He's greater, which is the first point. Jesus is greater than other gods. Jesus is greater than other gods. When you put God or Jesus in the same sentence of as Allah or Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad. When you really compare these gods, they're totally different. And when you compare them, Jesus is so much greater. If you look at the top four religions in the world, and we're going to have a little religion thing right now. Top four religion, religions in the world. Christianity is number one at 2.2 billion people average. We don't know if they're actually believers. They're they proclaim that they're believers. Okay, 2.2 billion Christians. The next one would be Islam, Muslims. 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. And that's rapidly growing. The next would be Hinduism. 1 billion Hindus in the world. After that would be Buddhism. 500 million Buddhists in the world. Atheists are like the smallest percentage. They're one of the smallest ones. But they like have all this power and control in our society. It's crazy. But when you look at these main religions and you compare Jesus to these other gods, he is totally different. Look at Allah. Okay, Allah, he's not a God that desires personal relationship. In fact, in the Quran, if you claim that you know Allah personally, it's blasphemy. To say, to claim you have a personal relationship with Allah is blasphemy. See, Allah, he doesn't offer the grace, uh, salvation through grace. In fact, he doesn't even have unconditional love. His love is conditional. It's conditional based on what you do. It says that in the Quran. He loves certain people because they do certain things. He doesn't love these other people because they don't do other things. It's a different God. See, the only way you can be saved, the only way you can have security and sal- for salvation when you look at Islam is jihad, dying in a holy war. That's why ISIS is doing what they're doing. You look at Muhammad. Muhammad, though he's not referred to as a god, right? He's the messenger for the, the Muslim religion. But he's revered like that. When you look at Muhammad, even as a prophet, Muslims believe that prophets are sinless, that all the prophets are sinless. Muhammad was a mass murderer. He was a mass murderer. He killed so many different people groups. Not only that, Muhammad, in the Quran, he contradicts himself time and time again. It's actually, they have a phrase for it, a word for it. It's called abrogation. Meaning, in the Quran, it says, the later prophecies trump the former. Meaning, we know these things contradict itself, so the last things that were written, those, those trump the things that were written before. Seriously, that's what it says. And you know what the last prophecies from Muhammad were? 
They're in Surah chapter 9, and that's when he says, if they don't convert to Islam, kill the infidels. The latest prophecies from Muhammad were the ones about jihad. We're the ones about killing people from other religions if they don't convert to Islam. See, there's many people that will look at ISIS and say, how can, how can these people do this? Like, they're supposed to be Muslims. Isn't, isn't Islam a peaceful religion? There are peaceful Muslims. But if you're truly practicing Islam, it's jihad. It's the only way that you can seal your salvation. It's dying in a holy war. It's killing people for your faith. That's the only way. See, ISIS, they're reforming their religion. It's like what happened in the 1500s with Martin Luther and Christianity. They're getting back to the text. And that's what the text means. There's a, a guy that I mentioned sometimes. Um, his name's Nabil Qureshi. Uh, one of my favorite apologists. Uh, apologists. He was... Uh, he used to be a Muslim. He converted to Christianity. He said when he really got down to it and, and really studied these things and compared Christianity to Islam, he realized with Islam, he had three choices. Okay, He could either be a lukewarm Muslim, if you will, know the truth and not accept it, walk away from Islam, or become radicalized. Those were the only three options. What did he choose to do? Thankfully, he walked away from Islam and he pursued Christianity. See, you look at Islam. The next biggest one uh, is Hinduism. And you have the New Age movement in America. And and many evolutionary uh, people that believe in evolution like to the fullest extent will bring in his Hinduism because it correlates somehow, some way, a little bit. We won't get into that much. But with Hinduism, they're basically a, a poly theistic and pantheistic religion combined meaning they worship other gods but these gods which are 330 million we got 1 billion people worshiping 330 million gods they represent this eternal force if you will this eternal force is is really pantheistic meaning it's not a god like we serve this pantheistic god pantheism is an impersonal god there's, there's not like the, the, the human character qualities like, like thought and love and desire for a relationship. It's just a force. It's like dualism. You have equal and opposite forces, good and, and evil. This is what Hinduism really is. It's referred to as Brahman. Okay. It's referred to as Brahman. It's this eternal force. Okay. Now, there is not that personal relationship with Brahman. You can't have a personal relationship with Brahman, but we'll see this force manifest itself in different gods. And many of these gods, it even says in the Vedas, their writings are, 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 are mythologies that they've made up over time. So they cover their tracks there a little bit. But when you really look at just the logic behind Hinduism, they believe in reincarnation. But reincarnation is not a good thing. Meaning our lives on earth, life is not a gift. It's not a blessing. It's a curse. The whole point in reincarnation is to stop existing. When you fulfill enlightenment, you you stop existing. That's when you've made it. You just become a part of the internal force, but you have no conscience. You have no awareness. There is no ultimate afterlife. This is what Hinduism states. This is what it teaches. You'll often hear the phrase karma thrown around, right? Karma, right? Karma is the most, one of the most cruel 
principles you can consider. Why? Because karma, it's not just based on what you do in this life. Meaning, if I do good, then good things will happen to me. If I do bad, bad things will happen to me. This isn't this life. This is all the other lives you've had. So it could literally be like this. You were a cricket in your last life. You took another cricket's branch and now you're going to suffer a painful death as a human. It's like, seriously, when you take it to the extreme, that's really what it is. All the past things that you've done, not in this life, in your 20, however many lives you had before that, you're paying the consequences for that. So the reason you're suffering in this world, you've brought it all upon yourself. It's not because of sin in the world. You bring your own suffering about So a little child, they die, they deserved it because of something they did in their past life. It's like crazy. It's the most cruel thing when you really think about what this stuff actually means. You look at Buddhism. Buddhism is a branch of Hinduism, right? Buddha was a, was a Hindu. And what Buddha did, actually the day, imagine if I did this, the day his wife was giving birth to his son, he left her. He left her to pursue spirituality. Why? Because he says the problem in this world is suffering. There's some truth to that. And the problem with suffering is desire. Okay? So if you can cut out all the desires in your life, that's how you attain enlightenment. And guess what the gift of enlightenment is? You stop existing after that life. That's the reward. Okay? So, but when you look at this, you're, you're cutting out all desire, meaning your desire for relationships. Cutting it out. That's what he did. I'm not going to have a relationship with my wife and kids. Cutting out the relationships. Cutting out desire for materialism. Cutting out some of the, the, the things are good. Cutting out desires that we shouldn't have, but also cutting out desires that we should have. Specifically, the relationships. Buddhism takes away the second most powerful thing in this world next to God. And that's love. Love, we were created to love. Buddhism, no, you, you want to detach yourself from relationships. You want to detach yourself from desire. But Jesus said, the greatest two commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself because we were created for relationships. When you look at just these four main religions, and we could talk about this forever. I get really passionate about this stuff. You can probably see. but when you look at this other stuff it's like dude our god is so much better than yours like our god is so none of those gods want personal relationship with you think about what jesus christ did jesus he has unconditional love for god so loved the world he loved us so much and wanted relationship with us so bad that he was willing to die for us none of those gods would die for anyone in fact in the quran it says allah will never die for you it says that You look at what Jesus did so that we could have relationship. It's not that we had to climb the mountain to meet him. He got off the mountain. He came down from his glorious abode and he interacted with us. He became a a bondservant. He took on the likeness of man and he laid down his life. He forgave us. Like when you think about that, he is so much greater than any other God. He is the greatest God. These people... And first Samuel chapter five are going to recognize that Yahweh is much greater than the God that they're serving. But I want to point out something. It says again in verse two that they set up the Ark of the Covenant by Dagon. Now we talked about these other gods and you were like, 
hopefully none of you are worshiping these other gods. No, but in all sincerity, you're probably not worshiping these other gods, right? But there are other gods that we can worship in our life, right? We call them idols. That's what they're doing. They're setting God up next to their idols. See, we can too also raise up idols next to God. And idols, it can really be anything. It's really anything that we put before the Lord. When we're not putting Christ first, when we're not putting that relationship first, we're putting anything. It could be sins, it could be habits, it could be relationships, it could be a boyfriend, it could be a girlfriend, it could be your family, it could be a career path, it could be materialism, it could be the way that you look, it really could be anything. That we put up before God. It doesn't mean that all those things are, uh, uh, that, that you have, oh, you have a husband, don't do it, pull a Buddha, <laughs> and walk away from the relationship. We're not saying that, but we can turn those things into idols. See, the Lord wants us to, to put him first. These people are setting him right next to their idol. And we can do that. But if you ask yourself, if you do have idols, what are they? an easy way to figure out what your idols are if you have them. I've mentioned this before. What do you spend your free time doing? When you have free time, what do you spend that time doing? Now, not that you shouldn't have time to, to, to relax and enjoy life and watch movies and do whatever you want, but it, it, it doesn't become a thing where it's like, I'm choosing this thing over choosing the Lord. Because when it comes to that, that's a clear to Hey, this could be idolatry. Right? And the Lord, he would ask, what are, what are our idols? See, the Lord, he's going to take care of this idol as we read. Let's look what happens. First Samuel chapter 5, verse 3. And when the people of Ishtad arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place. Remember the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. God said, you shall have no other God before me. They put another God before him. They might not know the commandments, but he's going to make sure they know. You at least know this one. Okay, I might not give you the other nine. You're going to know the first one for sure. And he lays this idol down, but he does it gently the first time. See, when we place idols in our lives and we place idols next to God, he'll ask us the first time. Lay that thing down. See, he'll ask us to lay it down, but if we don't lay it down, then he'll lay it down. Second point, you, you lay down your idols or he'll lay down his, your idols. Sorry, You lay down your idols or he will lay down your idols. See, the Lord will ask us, to lay down our idols the first time. And he'll even ask us gently because he knows our frame. He knows we're weak. He knows we're prone to idolatry. Our hearts are idol factories. Again, we'll make idols out of anything. He knows this weakness of ours. So we'll say, hey, hey, this thing in your life, I'm telling you, it's starting to get in the way. Starting to get in the way of, of your relationship with me. And I'm asking you for your own benefit to lay this thing down. Again, whatever that thing may be. Because he desires to be on the top shelf. Not that we put him on our shelf of idols. Here's my God and here's my God and here's... No, he's got to be on the top shelf. Okay, these other things, you can spend time with that stuff, but I got to be first. I got to be preeminent. See, Jesus, he had an issue with this too. And you remember on Sunday, if you were here, we talked about 
him cleansing the temple. And really, the reason he was cleansing the temple is, one, because the people, uh, the religious leaders were getting in the way uh, between the people and their worship of God. They were little, literally preventing the people from worshiping God because they were overcharging them and everything. But the reason that was happening basically was because they made an idol out of money. They made an idol out of money. They use the temple as a business. Really, they're worshiping an idol in the temple in the form of money, the God of mammon, if you will, Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 6. And what happens? What does Jesus do? The first time, John chapter 2, we talked about this on Sunday, he comes in and he cleans house. Why? Because they're basically worshiping an idol in the temple. And what happens? A few years go by and they start doing it again. That's why we see Jesus come in the second time, the last week of his life as a man. He comes and cleans house again. He cleanses their temple of idolatry just as he wants to cleanse our temple of idolatry. And he'll do it one time. And then if we choose to raise that thing up again, he'll do it another time. And we see with the temple, ultimately, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus prophesies and said, I'm going to destroy the temple because you're misusing it. And he destroys the temple that's fulfilled through the Romans in 70 AD. Just as we saw that with the religious leaders in the gospels, we see that with these men as well. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, look what it says. The last sentence of verse three says so they took dagon and set it in its place again they put the idol back up they raised the idol back up the lord caused the idol to fall and he did it gently but then they chose to raise that idol back up see the lord sometimes will say hey i need you to lay this thing down and sometimes they'll say hey i just want you to lay this down for a season can you just take a season away from this and stop doing this for a little bit because it's getting in the way Not that this thing is bad, but it's starting to become bad because it's interfering with our relationship. And then we might say, yeah, okay, I'll lay it down for that time period. Great, you passed the test. But there's other times where we'll say, hey, I want you to lay down this thing forever. I don't want you to ever come back to this thing. And because we fall into idolatry, we'll pick that thing up, we'll raise it back up, set it back in its place. And what do we do when we do that? We're forcing the Lord's hand. Look what he does in the next verse. Verse 4. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. He laid it down the first time. In fact, he made that God worship him. He made that God fall on his face and worship the Lord because every knee will bow, even the gods, false gods, demons, whoever, every knee will bow. So he lays it down the first time. They raise it back up and he's like, okay, you're going to raise the idol back up. You're forcing me to get destructive. And the Lord, he gets violent. He crushes this idol. See, when we persist in idolatry, it leads to our destruction. Point number three. Persistent idolatry breeds destruction. Persistent idolatry breeds destruction. They decided to raise it back up and he destroyed that God. He destroyed that idol and that's what the Lord 
does. He's in the business of not just redeeming us, but destroying our idols. And not only does he destroy our idols, he destroys our idols because our idols destroy us. He doesn't want us to face destruction, so he destroys the thing that's leading us to destruction. Because when we continue to fall into those same things and committing idolatry and raising those things back up again when he told us to lay them down, we will face destruction. Idolatry destroys us. It will destroy, it will destroy our lives. It will destroy our, our hope. How can you trust in an idol That can't give you hope. Jesus can only give you hope, but will raise up idols, whatever it may be, and put our hope in that thing. And that hope will always disappoint us. It'll destroy our relationships, our relationships with God, our relationships with people. Idolatry is so destructive. Now you might think, oh, what's a little Facebook going to hurt me? Yeah, I know I got a problem, but I don't want to lay it down. And maybe that won't completely destroy you, but there's things that people worship. That destroy them. My friend last year, he was in ministry. He fell. He was, a, he was a drug addict. He fell. Fell back into drugs. Got back into heroin. Completely hopeless. When he was supposed to be serving the Lord in the church, they found him dead in a Burger King bathroom. Idolatry. This was guy, if you met him, you would just fall in love with him. Nicest guy. So fun to be around. Gifted in ministry. He raised the idol back up and it literally destroyed his life. Dead in a Burger King bathroom, serving the Lord, like doing so much for Jesus and falling back into that idolatry. Sometimes we don't take it as seriously as we should. And maybe your idol isn't that. But nevertheless, the Lord has a warning for all of us that idols in our life, they they will destroy us. They'll destroy our relationships, whether it's sexual immorality whether it's addiction, whatever it is, the Lord, He wants to destroy those things so they don't destroy us. First Samuel chapter 5, verse 5. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So basically, they considered this place a holy place. Okay, listen, listen, God crushes this idol and they say, okay, don't walk around where the idol was crushed because we're making this like a a holy spot. They're not recognizing that God just destroyed their idol. They're making this into like another religious thing. Okay, respect the threshold that 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 the idol was crushed on. See, instead of accepting the truth that God was trying to destroy their idols, they convinced themselves that this was a good thing. And we can do that too. We can lie to ourselves. Yeah, I know the Lord brought this trial in my life to get my attention, or I know this, or I know that, but I'm going to ignore the truth that I know he's trying to communicate, and I'm going to pretend like it's not happening. And I'm going to make it actually a good thing. See, that's what the people were doing. God was trying to get their attention. He wasn't just trying to destroy their idol. For God to love the world. Yahweh loves the Philistines. He wants them to come to faith. It's not just him trying to make a point about the idols. He's trying to get their attention. We'll see. We'll talk about this testimony to the unbelievers in the next chapter. The Lord wants these people to recognize him. But despite all the evidence, they're they're disregarding it. They're acting like nothing happened. Why? Well, 
Probably a big reason why is, is, is they don't want to worship a God that have, they have to completely submit to. They don't want to worship a God that calls them to change. And that's why many people don't accept Jesus. No, you don't have to change to come to Jesus. But when you come to Jesus, you're going to change. And that's the truth. And so many people, they don't want to change. They would rather be comfortable than free. The truth will set us free, but they don't want to accept the truth that sets us free. They'd rather be comfortable. They'd rather continue in the same thing. And it's so sad, but we see the destruction that it brings. It's going to bring destruction, not just to their idol, but all of these people. Look what happens in the next verse. First Samuel chapter five, verse six. We'll get through the last part much quicker than the first, I promise. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So God, he didn't only strike down the idol, he began striking down the people. See, we don't even know if all these people are worshiping Dagon. We don't know. We know the priests are and the people of the temple are. The Philistines had many gods that they worshiped. But regardless, because of the worship of certain people, the whole nation is going to suffer. What's the point? Our idolatry, it always affects others. Point number four is just that. Our idolatry always affects others. Now, I'm not saying these people are innocent and weren't worshiping Dagon. But I am saying Either way, whether they were or they weren't, our idolatry certainly does affect the people around us. It, it, it brings them destruction. It influences them. It influences them to the point that they fall into destruction. Perfect example. Why is this man that ever walked the earth apart from Christ? Who is that? And what happened to him? Second Kings chapter 11 says that his heart's turned, that his wives turned his heart away from God. Solomon. Why is this guy? But he started worshiping idols. He fell into idolatry. And what happened? That brought destruction to the entire nation. He was concerned about the enemies outside of Israel. So he married Pharaoh's daughter. And he married all these princesses and queens thinking that he would protect the outside. But what did he do? He brought the enemy on the inside. He literally brought idolatry into the nation of Israel. And that's when they start running rampant with idolatry. For hundreds of years after that. See... The idolatry of some will always affect others. It affects the people around us. First Samuel chapter five, verse seven. So all these people, they get struck with tumors. And then it says, and when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon, our God. So they're done with it. They wanted to give it back. See, the Lord, <laughs> they're trying to get rid of God. Like you, you can't just get rid of God. It, it doesn't work like that. So instead of accepting the facts, instead of accepting the truth, they just pass the judgment on to the next people. It's like, oh, he's offended us. He's destroyed us and our gods. We're just going to get rid of him. God's, no, that's not what he wants. He wants them to recognize that he's the true God. But they end up just getting rid of God. First Samuel chapter 5, verse 8. Therefore, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. 
So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. So they just, Ashdod passes it off to Gath. Now Gath is facing destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they think they're assuming that they keep passing this ark on so that judgment can take place. But that's not the Lord's heart. Once again, he's trying to get their attention. Look at verse 11. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. So they want to send it back to Israel. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So now we got all these cities, the three main cities. I believe there was five main cities in this area at the time. All these cities, the people are crying out because they're suffering. They're suffering. They're going through pain. They have tumors. And what do they want to do? They just want to get rid of God. They're crying out for God to relieve their pain, but they're not crying out for God. They don't want God in their lives. They just want to be relieved from the pain. See, people will cry out for relief from their suffering, but they don't always cry out to Jesus. Point number five, the pain won't stop until you accept the great physician. The pain won't stop until you accept the great physician. They think if they can just get rid of God, the pain will stop. And we'll see some of this plague. It does end up going away. But again, they're missing the point. And some of us, we can miss the point as well. I want the pain to stop, but I don't want to to accept the Lord for the unbeliever. Or for the Christian, I want the pain to stop, but I don't want to change. I want the suffering to stop, but I don't want to lay down my idols. I don't want to repent of this sin. I want to continue falling into the same thing, but I don't want the consequences of it. As long as we continue to raise up idols in our lives, we'll continue to suffer needlessly and endlessly, just like these people. See, God, he wants to heal us. He wants to restore us. He wants to bring complete healing. Just as we saw in uh, the temple cleansing on Sunday, he was trying to cleanse the temple so that it could become the house of prayer and also so that people could be healed. And he wants the same for us. He wants to rid us of our idols so that we can experience healing. He wants us to experience his love to the fullest. But we have a responsibility uh, for that too. The Bible tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. God to abide in his love. Yes, his love is limitless and unconditional, but we can separate ourselves from that. And idolatry is one of those things that separates us from abiding in that perfect love. See the people, they recognize the power of God, but they didn't accept him. They didn't accept the power. They didn't accept the relationship and they suffered the consequences See, we might not, we might recognize his power and we might say, yeah, I know he's greater than all these other gods. Yes, he's proven himself in my life and we can call him Lord. But do we make him Lord of our lives? Is he truly Lord of our lives? Is he our suggester or is he our Lord? 
Is it like when he tells us to do something, whether it's lay that down or pick that up, there's not an option. I I can't choose to not do it. I I have to do it because he's my Lord. See, he proved his lordship, but they didn't make him Lord. And again, they've suffered destruction for this. See, God, he wants to be our God. He wants to be preeminent. And if there's anything that's in the way, if he is our God, we can rest assured that if there's any idols in our lives, he will lay those down. I'll ask us, either you lay it down or I lay it down. And when we force him to lay it down, as we see in this text, sometimes it's going to cause us pain. Sometimes it's going to cause us suffering. He doesn't want that for us. He'll absolutely use suffering. He's not afraid to use suffering to teach us things, but it's not to harm us. It's to help us. It's to grow us so that we can get the most out of our lives, the most out of our relationship with him. But again, if there's anything standing in that way, we have the option to lay it down or wait till he does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, I, I pray such a, man, Sunday and Wednesday, Lord, heavy, heavy stuff. I, I pray, God, that you would, um, you would reveal those things in our life. If there is idolatry, if there is anything that's taking preeminence, Lord, even good things. God, I pray that you would reveal that to us and, and you would be gentle with us. God, that you would ask us nicely to lay it down, Lord, and that we would in humility respond to that and do it, that we would make you, Lord, that we would do what you're asking us to do, God, that we know you want to be first because you want the best for us. So I pray that we would do just that, that we would put you first, that we would make you first, and we wouldn't let anything get in the way. In your name, amen.